those who follow Jesus, those who make Jesus the number one pursuit, passion, and priority of their lives, have their needs met miraculously and unexpectedly. All right, well, this is now week number four of our summer sermon series where we're looking at seven signs in John's gospel. Uh, we've said a couple of times, probably say it every week, why are we doing this? Well, we said that signs point to something and signs are there to be seen, understood and followed just like when you're driving your cars. We see a sign and we want to follow them. We don't just look at them and ignore them. I'm sure you've found just as much frustration as me with those people on the road who seemingly look at signs and pay no attention to them. So there's a <laughs> one small but quite real reason if you live uh, here in Bahrain, you know what I'm talking about. People who see signs don't pay any attention and do what they want anyway. But we want to see signs. We want to do what the signs are pointing us towards. And I read this week that a weakness of all human beings somebody once said, is trying to do too many things at once. So if you're listening to me and scrolling Facebook, stop it. Don't. One thing at once. Do one job properly in its entirety. And I read that that scatters your effort and destroys your direction. It makes for haste. You're doing lots of jobs not quite well enough. It makes for haste and haste makes for waste. So we do Things all in every which way wrong we could do before we find oh, this is how we should really be doing it. When we see, when we find, and when we discover that right way, that proper way, that proper priority, we see what can be done and what should be done first. And that's why we're looking at the signs in John's Gospel. Today then a big question for you is what comes first in your life? What are you pursuing as your number one priority? What is the most important thing to you? That's the big question. Today the sign, the miracle, the wondrous work is often known as the feeding of the 5,000. And it's also recorded in the other three uh, Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But I think we need a better name for it than this, because feeding the 5,000 is not that accurate, because it leaves out all the women and children. So, if you would usually head out to kids' church on a Friday morning, what I would love you to do is, whilst we're talking about this this morning, have a think what you would call this. So most Bibles, uh, my Bible right in front of me now, as the little subheading, Jesus feeds the 5,000. But it's not that accurate, because there are women and children there as well. So, what should we call this sign? What should we call this uh, miracle? If you'd usually go to kids' church, I would love you to ask your mum and dad to drop it in the comments down below this video, and at the end, uh, we'll read out uh, all, any and all sensible suggestions about a better name for this 
miracle wonder, a better name for this sign, because feeding the 5,000 undersells it. it. It's not actually what happened. So we'll read those at the end. If you don't normally go to kids' church and you're a, <laughs> a grown-up and you want to you play along as well, then do. Uh, but we'll read out any suggestions from kids first. Uh, so, today then, John chapter 6, verses 1 through to 14. Uh, first, we're going to see the place and we're going to see the problem. So read with me John chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sea. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. First thing then, We've had a change in location. We've gone over to Tiberias, uh, sometimes the Sea of Galilee, called the Sea of Tiberias, because there was a town of the same name built on the shores um, of the, the lake. Uh, John mainly records and writes about things that Jesus did and said around Judea and Jerusalem, but sometimes include other stuff as well. Uh, mainly around the Galilee region, as with this today. Edwin Bloom wrote that the time between John chapter 5 and John chapter 6 was probably about six months. So if you look back a couple of verses in your Bible, John chapter 5 verse 47, between there and John chapter 6 verse 1, where we read after this, there's most probably a six-month gap. Now, since this was the second, this is the second Passover that John has mentioned, and he mentioned at least one more, we can reasonably conclude that Jesus is earthly, incarnate, uh, in the flesh ministry lasted about three years. And if we know that, then the events that take place in John chapter 6 took place about one year before Jesus was crucified. So that's where we are. There's lots of people there. Large, a large crowd of regular people is what John is describing here when he writes, and a large crowd was following him. They're following him, Jesus, because as we read, uh, they saw the signs that he was doing uh, on the sick. Now think back last week, we talked about one of those signs, didn't we? Uh, the miraculous healing uh, with just his word and his will. Jesus and the disciples then go up to a mountain, a, a hill, a, a slope in the ground, a raised area, a place from which he can see this massive crowd of regular people. And he sees this big crowd, Jesus sees the big crowd of people, says to Philip, basically, uh, where's all the food coming from for, for this lot? There's a huge crowd of people coming. How are we going to feed them? He says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, John didn't tell us here, as Mark does in his uh, account of the uh, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. John doesn't say, but Mark does, that the crowd had been listening to Jesus teaching all day. 
So this is not some random crowd that's appeared from nowhere. They've been with Jesus all day. He's had an opportunity to be with them and sit with them and teach them. So he's concerned, right, you've been with me all day. Now, where are we to buy bread so that these people can eat? Now he knows, doesn't he? He knows what's about to happen. Jesus knows where the food is coming from. He knows all that there is to know. But John writes that he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus knows, but there's no harm in asking a question is there, to help people understand what's about to happen and what's happening, to draw out some responses and suggestions from people, as we now see. So the place and the problem, they are... Other side of the Sea of Galilee, there's a large crowd that have been with them. Nothing to feed them with. So that's the place. That's where we're at. That's the problem. That's what's going on. And now in verses 7 through to 11, we see some solutions. Let's read verses 7 to 11. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. The place problem, now there's a a suggestion, a a solution, a suggested solution, difficult to say. Philip's response comes first, the very practical of the, the, the business mind says 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough to feed them, even if all of them just had a little bit. 200 denarii was 200 days wages for a day laborer. Basically then, for your average guy in the crowd, this was about eight months of pay. And Philip says, look, uh, even if we spent that much money on bread, it wouldn't be enough for all of them to have a little. Andrew's response is quite practical, it's quite personal, and it's very resourceful. He says, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And this boy has five loaves, two fish. The, uh, we read, there's, there's a boy, there's a boy here with a little bit of food. And it's the only time in the New Testament that this word that we read in English as boy, it's the only time in the New Testament that this word is used. And it means a little boy, um, a, la- a, li- a little lad, probably a little boy with his packed lunch. He's probably four, five, six years old. He's a little boy. And this is not a, a rich, luscious lunch, you know, lovingly prepared by his mum or bought from a restaurant and saved and packed up later. He's got, uh, we read, don't we, he's got five barley loaves and two fish. Now, barley at the time was regarded as a very, very simple and cheap food, more appropriate for animals to eat, not people. And the way that John writes about the fish tells us that this was not some nice, fresh, juicy, catch-of-the-day fish from down at the market. This is more of a relish. This is more dried, tiny dried fish 
kind of that's the idea that he's trying to communicate. So this idea of this little lad coming along and you know and, and he's got a basket and he pulls back the tea towel and there's hot fresh bread and two succulent lovely fresh fish is just not true. He's got five tiny bits of bread, a little bit of dried fish to kind of spread on top. And he's very, very likely from a very, very poor family. There is a boy here as a five barley loaves and two fish. But what this, what's that for so many? And then Jesus responds, have the people sit down. There was a lot of grass in that place. The men sat down, about 5,000 in number. So Jesus just says, have the people sit down. There's no hype. There's no fuss. It's very clear. And it's very, very simple. And John tells us that there's much grass in that place, which means there is a lot of space. And there's around 5,000 men present, we read. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Uh, 5,000, around 5,000 men, uh, then plus women and children, as Matthew tells us in chapter 14, verse 21. So there's maybe anywhere between a conservative guess of 10,000 and a generous guess of 20,000 people there. So you see what I mean now when we said that calling this the feeding of the 5,000 is massively understating this. It's hugely undervaluing what went on. Now again, if you would usually go to kids' church on a Friday, we would love you to ask mum and dad to drop a comment uh, underneath or next to the video. What we should call this then? Because feeding the 5,000 doesn't do this justice, does it? So there's the place and the problem. Some suggested solutions. And now we see the time. Let's read together verses 12, 13, and 14. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is, come, who is to come into the world. So first then Jesus takes this bread and gives thanks. Uh, very traditional, very customary for the head of the home, the host of the dinner, to, uh, to, to thank God for the food that they were about to eat. Now John uses a word here that was very, very quickly adopted into church life. And where, he, where we read in English, uh, Jesus gave thanks. John uses this word Eucharist. And maybe you've heard that word before. Maybe you've heard of taking communion called taking the Eucharist. This morning we're going to partake in the Eucharist together. Very plainly and very simply, it means giving thanks before receiving food. That's the plainest and simplest way to explain what the word Eucharist means. Giving thanks before receiving food. 
And that's one reason why as a church we consistently say that this attitude of Eucharist, the attitude of giving thanks before we eat food, the attitude that we show collectively during the formal taking of communion as a church, that attitude of Eucharist should be present every time we break bread together, every time we share food together, every time you sit and have a meal together whether it's just you and the Lord, whether it's you and your spouse, whether it's you and your big extended family, that attitude of Eucharist, of giving thanks, should be present. And we read that, as Jesus did this for the bread, so also for the fish. And then he distributes, he starts giving it out. We read that Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. And he gives them as much as they want. And we just... I love this, that a little is a lot in Jesus' hands. He's got five tiny bits of bread, poor, cheap, probably not that tasty. A couple of bits of fish. A little is a lot in Jesus' hands. And we read in verse 12 that when they had eaten their fill, then he tells them to go and pick up the leftovers. But in saying, look... When John says, when they'd eaten their fill, John is communicating, John is telling us that these people were satisfied, they were full. This is not a corner of a bit of bread for you and a couple of crumbs for you. This was a big, proper feed. This was take as much bread as you want. Now, there is, there's a very plain and a very simple and a very clear uh, meaning behind this sign that we're going to talk about in a couple of minutes. But... As often uh, with the, the Word of God that we read in our Bibles, the, there are lots of layers to it. It's important that we identify the main thread, the big thing, the main thing, and we're going to do that in a moment. But also significant in this story, we need to bear in mind that throughout the Old Testament, this figure of eating and drinking was very widely used as a figure of speech to show that somebody is prosperous. Somebody is doing well. Because if you have enough to eat and drink, you are rich in worldly ways. If you don't go to bed on a night and wonder what you're going to eat tomorrow because you've either got it in the house or you've got the money to go and buy it, then you are rich in worldly ways. And this pops up again and again and again through the Old Testament. This figure... That eating, drinking is, is, is used to show prosperity. So when John is saying, look, these people had as much as they want and there was so much left over, another layer to that is what he's saying is, look, these people in the presence of Jesus just prospered. They had exactly what they needed and then some. And then after they've eaten, Jesus tells disciples to gather up the leftovers. He says, gather up leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And then they gather up filled 12 baskets uh, with leftover bits, fragments from the bread uh, left by those who had eaten. And this was, uh, again, another teaching moment for the disciples. They're spending more time with Jesus in more intimate ways than anybody. And they're starting to learn 
Jesus is more than adequate to meet any and all needs that any and all people might have if they just come to him and make him their priority. And then the last verse in our passage today, verse 14, says, When the people saw this, when they saw the sign that he had done, they started saying, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, the prophet, maybe it's capitalized in your Bible, uh, is a reference to the prophet like Moses uh, of Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, which says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. A really quick side point. Again, it's not the main thing that this passage is teaching us, but it's another wonderful little layer to it, is that just to pause and just to think, if someone came along into your life and claimed to be this, that, or the other on behalf of God, would you know, biblically, scripturally, therefore, for sure, whether they were true or not? Do you know the word well enough to call out false as false and to label true as true? Or are you just kind of floating along with the mainstream and, well, you know, there's a few people there, so I guess it's all right. And I heard the name Jesus and they were talking about the Holy Spirit and they reference God now and again. Do you know the word well enough to call out false as false and true is true? It's just something to consider because these people knew enough scripture to know that Jesus was different, that there was something going on here that we don't see this every day. They've been thinking, and they've been thinking this, you know, this, this, could, this could be the guy. You know, is it you? Are we looking for somebody else kind of thing? But they knew, in, all that to say, they knew enough scripture to recognize what was going on. Now again, it's not the main point of what we're talking about this morning, but it's a great little side point. Do you, do you know enough scripture to be able to recognize what is going on in your life? So, in John chapter 6, verses 1 to 14 then, we see a place, a problem, some solutions, and a sign. Now what do we take from this? What is this passage teaching us this bit of text is teaching us that those who follow jesus have their needs met miraculously and unexpectedly let me say that again john chapter 6 verses 1 to 14 is teaching us that those who follow jesus have their needs met miraculously and unexpectedly Jesus has dominion. He is Lord of uh, everything in the natural world, as we're going to talk about next week, and everything in the created world as well. Whatever these people needed, and in, in this particular case, it was nourishment, it was food, it was phys- they needed physically sustaining. Whatever these people needed, Jesus was more than able and willing to meet their needs because they had made him their priority. They had put following him far above and beyond 
anything else in their lives. And because of this, their needs were met miraculously and in wonderfully unexpected ways. So for you, right now, do you have a need? Right now in your life, do you have a need? And what kind of need is it? Is it physical? Like the guy that we talked about last week. Is it spiritual? Is it some kind of hang-up, misunderstanding, roadblock? Is there, is, there, is there just something? Is your need spiritual? Is it emotional? Is the state of the world at the moment pushing you towards things like anxiety and depression? Is it an emotional need? Is it a mix? No two needs among us are going to be exactly the same. And they often, well, all the time, they don't fall into these lovely little boxes that we might like them to like, physical, spiritual, emotional. There's probably a bit of everything going on in your life at the moment. I know that for sure is uh, for me. You know, do you feel like at the moment that nobody really gets it? that nobody really understands what you are going through at the moment, like you have got nowhere else to turn at the moment. And if, if that is you, let me tell you, sincerely, on all the authority of the Word of God and from my own personal experience, that those who follow Jesus, those who make Jesus the number one pursuit passion and priority of their lives have their needs met miraculously and unexpectedly. You know, we could get very moral here. We could get very self-focused and say something like, well, you know, uh, you need to pack up your lunches, people. We could kind of pound the pulpit and shake things around. We can't really see because we've got a camera. Uh, you know, we could get really moral and say that you need to pack your lunch. You know, you find your five loaves and then you get your two fish. And, like, because Jesus needs your loaves and Jesus needs your fish to, to work with. I really hope nobody tuned in just at that point. You know, we could get really moral, very self-centered and say that. You know, you need to pack your bread. You need to pack your fish. So you need to work really hard to bring your loaves and your fish as an offering to Jesus. And <laughs> the big problem with that is that the Bible is not about you. This sign is not about you. And sadly, that is what passes for preaching the word in a load of places. That it's about you and you need to pack your bread and you need to find your fish and tell me your five loaves and tell me your... No, it's not, this sign is not about you. But just think. If there were, conservative estimate, 10,000 people there and Andrew comes up with, um, there's a boy here who's got Five barley loaves and two fish. But that's not enough for the masses, is it? And then with that, Jesus feeds thousands and thousands and thousands of people. That means that 99.99% of people turned up with nothing. 
They had nothing to offer of any value at all. 99.99% of people here turned up with nothing and they still found more than enough in Jesus. Their needs were met miraculously and supernaturally and they brought nothing. They did nothing. They deserved nothing. All they did was make Jesus their number one priority and passion and they followed him wherever he went and they listened to what he said. You know, friends, you don't need to be that little boy with his packed lunch because bigger picture. Not only has Jesus promised and evident and guaranteed to meet all of your needs, whether they be physical, spiritual, or emotional, or some crazy mix of all three, Jesus has not only promised and evidence and guaranteed to meet them, he's actually provided the goods with which he works as well. You don't need to think, well, maybe I'm that 0. whatever percent, and I need to bring the bread to the other people. No, you don't need to bring anything we don't need to be the lad with his lunch we can rest easy being the 99.99 percent and that all we need to do is make jesus our number one priority our master passion make him what we're following and prioritizing and that he will take care of the rest you know, in Matthew chapter 6, we read of the pursuit and the prioritization of earthly things, things um, under the sun, as Solomon refers to them in the book of Ecclesiastes. And, and, and there, in, in, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, look, all that stuff will be taken care of. What you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you'll wear, it's representative of, of, of your life. All that stuff's going to be taken care of if you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. This has just got to be then. This must, must, must be a, a rule in our life when we're ordering our priorities. We've, we live in a, a point in time where possibly we are busier than any other generation ever. We've got access to more information than anybody else in the world has ever had and it's all at your fingertips and all you've got to do is ask your phone to show you it and it does and it's so wrong for us to think that our faith Jesus our salvation our just our Christianity our faith it's wrong for us to think that that is just another priority to work into the list friends it absolutely has to be number one. Jesus reminds us in Matthew chapter 6 that our physical well-being, our life, our stuff is not a worthy object to devote our lives to. Think of those people following Jesus here back then in John chapter 6. Were they following Jesus above and beyond themselves and what they'd need? Yeah, I, th I think they were. Otherwise, they would have brought a packed lunch. They would have thought about it, but they didn't. They just went ahead and followed Jesus. They made him their number one priority and went with it. I read this this week, that this choice, this choice to seek first the kingdom of God, is the fundamental choice everyone makes when they first repent 
and come to faith in Jesus. Old is gone, new is here. That's the fundamental choice that we all make at that moment in time, to seek first the kingdom of God. Yet every day after that, our Christian life will either reinforce that decision or deny that decision. So when you decided enough is enough, old is old, new is new, I want the life that Jesus died to provide, that was you seeking first the kingdom of God. Now every day after that, everything you do, say, is either confirming reinforcing, as we read, or denying that decision because you're living in a way that's not consistent with seeking first things. So, John chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. Jesus provides for his people. This sign shows us that Jesus provides for his people. They had followed him with a singular focus and devotion and he took care of their needs notice with me though that he didn't do this ahead of time they didn't pack bread for the journey they didn't plan their their, their walking route to pass by a bank and then a bakery so they could well you know it's, it's careful and proper planning they knew they knew that Jesus would provide if they made him their master passion, their top priority, and they just followed him. I read this recently. Uh, in, a, in, a, in an art gallery in Berlin is a painting by German painter Adolf Menzel, and it's not quite finished. He intended to show Frederick the Great having a bit of a, a discussion, a bit of a powwow with some of his generals. And Menzel painted the generals on the background, and he left the king until last. And he put in an outline in the painting. You can look this up. He put in an outline of, of Frederick in charcoal, but then he died prior to finishing this painting. Now, a lot of Christians, too many believers, come to the end of their lives without ever having put Jesus in his proper place. There's an outline of him in your life, but he is not the number one priority. Yet we want what the Bible teaches about seek first the kingdom of God, and then we want that stuff. We want to think, yep, I would have been those people following Jesus. We want, we so badly want what he has to offer. But too many people kind of float through life without putting Jesus in his proper place as the number one priority and passion and pursuit of their lives. So friends, read John chapter 6 verses 1 to 14 again. Don't be the people who don't put, yeah, that's right, don't be the people that don't put Jesus as number one. Be those people who follow Jesus with a singular focus and devotion. Be those people who when other people meet, they say straight away, wow, there is something different about you. What is it? And then you can say, yeah, it's because I'm following Jesus as the master passion of my life. He is my top priority. Everything I say, do, think, I try to put underneath Jesus is number one. So friends, don't be those people who never make 
Jesus the number one priority of your life. Be those people who follow Jesus with a singular focus and devotion, knowing that, as John chapter 6, verses 1 to 14 teaches us, that those who follow Jesus have their needs met miraculously and honestly.